This is an ABC podcast. Tom Nash describes himself as a speaker, a storyteller and a vagabond. He's also a club DJ and he's given a TED talk on the perks of being a pirate. And that's because Tom gets about on two prosthetic legs and Tom also has two arms with hooks at the ends of them. Tom Nash's life changed radically in his first year of uni and it took many years to adjust to the wrenching changes of living without his original arms and legs. When Tom left hospital, he was walking unsteadily and learning to use his new arms and his new hooks. None of this seems to have really held him back. Tom has started a band, he does public speaking, and he's travelled all around the world. In fact, his new life seems to have taken him in places he never expected to go. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Well, sir, nice to have you here. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. May I make the initial comment that you have a lovely radio voice? Oh, yes. I, I, also, it's been noted that I have a face for radio, which I'm sure <laughs> I is... I too. <laughs> we have all this in common. We're connecting. <laughs> I don't know why I fixed my hair so well this morning. <laughs> no, no, you could come in tracky dacks and it would have been fine, That's I think. True, yeah. Tell me where you grew up, Tom. Uh, well, I was actually born overseas in South Africa, but only lived there for a couple of years. And then I grew up in Dallas, Texas for about six or something like that. And then I came to Australia around the age of nine, I think. I did you know. have the Texan accent for a I while? I did have the Texan accent. Um, I think I lost it pretty quickly, partly due to my age, but I moved to the Sutherland Shire. It was my first port of call. <laughs> And a Southern Texan accent doesn't last long down there before it gets beaten out of you. Uh, so, yeah, that didn't take too long. What was expected of you growing up, do you think, if there were expectations of you? Uh, I don't think I had too many expectations growing up. I mean, I had pretty good parents and uh, they never pressured me too much into things. Uh, there was an expectation that I would go to university, but I was always able to choose what I wanted to do within that. And at that age, you know, I didn't really want know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so I think I just selected something that interested me vaguely, which was psychology and philosophy and studied that without it being a means to an end, but just a, a point of interest, I guess. How much of uni did you did you manage to get through? Oh, just the first year. And that's when I got sick with uh, meningococcal. Yeah. How did you know things went right? When did you first start feeling unwell? I started feeling unwell only about... 24 hours before I did anything about it. So it was like, a, uh, I think it was a Wednesday and I went to uni with the intention of going to all my lectures, which was actually a rarity if I must say. Uh, but I got there and I felt like I had like flu-like symptoms. I was really lethargic and head was full and had a headache and all, all sorts of stuff. And so I actually sent myself home. And I think I had the following night, I was going to be going to a concert and I actually cancelled on that, which was my first indication. Cancelling uni is one thing, mm. right? But cancelling a yeah. music concert, it's like, oh, I must actually be sick. Um, but I went, yeah, I went home on the Wednesday night and... Hadn't gone to the doctor at this stage? No, I had my 18-year-old yeah. kid or 19-year-old kid. You don't need the doctor. <laughs> you just wait and get better. It's the flu, isn't it? So yeah, what are you going right. to do? Yeah, you're invincible. I had spoken to my stepsister about it and she said, oh, I can take you to the doctor if you want. And I just said, no, it's unnecessary. But that night was pretty horrendous and I, I'd slept for maybe 15 hours and I woke up in cold sweats, crawling to the bathroom, uh, vomiting, having a fever, passing out in the shower, all sorts of stuff. Passing <laughs> out like collapsing in the shower. Yeah, yeah. I think Because I remember feeling really cold and I thought, how can I warm myself up? 
And so I went into the shower and I put the hot water on me. And then I must have passed out in the shower because I came to with cold water raining down upon me and blood in the shower. So I thought, oh, this is not where I left my car case. Um, so I Are you to, very frightened at that point? I think so, but but also I was a bit delusional. So it was it was hard to get a read on it. But I knew something was wrong. And so when the morning came around, I texted my stepsister and I said, look, you, I think you've got to take me to a doctor, maybe. Maybe. And she, yeah. No, I just didn't want to see people. Right. Um, and so she came over and by the time she'd gotten there, I think it took her 20 minutes to get to my apartment. And that's the exact amount of time it took for me to try and put my shoes on because my feet had swollen up. And of course, what meningococcal does is it's a blood infection and it gives you septicemia. And one of the telltale signs is you get this purple rash all over your body and, you know, parts of you just expand and swell up. And so she took one look at me and said, I'm taking you to a hospital, not a doctor. And when she took one look at you, were you standing or were you I was standing. standing. Yeah, yeah. I was able to stand by that point. But it took me a while to get to the buzzer to let her in the apartment. It was actually a bit of an ordeal. And so she said, I'm not taking you to a doctor, I'm taking you to a hospital, which I believed at that point to be an overcorrection. Uh, but I was happy to concede because I was feeling pretty rubbish. And I happened to live around the corner from a hospital, Balmain Hospital. They saw me pretty swiftly. It wasn't one of those, you know, you go to the ER, they're like, give us your name and, you know, everyone that you've ever slept with and wait there for eight hours. Like they actually looked at me and said, okay, you know, we're putting you straight in a wheelchair and then started sticking needles into me. Was there some sense of alarm because you would have you're presenting with all the symptoms of meningococcal by the sound? Yeah, of but I didn't know what meningococcal was, yeah. and I, I'm not sure whether they diagnosed me on the spot, but they definitely knew that it was out of their capabilities, and I had to be sent somewhere else. So I was swiftly sent off to RPA as an inpatient. What do you remember of being admitted to RPA as you were, of course, getting more and more progressively? Ill. Yeah, very little because I, when I was admitted to RPA, I was induced into a coma. And I think you lose a little bit of memory before that happens as well, after the fact. As, as you're saying this, I'm just feeling mm. this incredible fearfulness, I think. And because I, one thing I do know about meningococcal is that every minute counts. Yeah, addressing absolutely. it. And, and this yeah. had been like, what, a day or something or nearly 24 yeah, well, hours since I you'd, mean, you'd feeling, been feeling bad? Yeah, it, it's hard to say really, because they, they do say the incubation period is like seven to 10 days. But once it gets to the point where you're presenting the rash, then it becomes really like swift. So if you're 10 minutes later, you could probably die. If you're 10 minutes earlier, yeah. you might save a limb or two. Like it can, it can be down to that. So you have this kind of blurry memory then of being admitted to RPA? Yes. So I, my last official memory was being in the ambulance on the way to RPA from Balmain Hospital. And I was trying to make the guy in the back of the ambulance laugh. <laughs> Because he was because he was so stoic. I don't know what his problem was. He's frightened for you. That's why. I'm not sure whether he was. Maybe he was trying to put a brave face on for me or something. Uh, but I said to him, "You're trying to make him laugh." What were yeah, you sorry? Yeah. What were you saying? Oh, I just I said I said uh, you know how long until we? I'd been uh, trying to make him laugh and he wasn't laughing. And then I remember <laughs> cracking because it was like how long do, until we get to RPA? 
And he said 10 minutes. And I said, that's 10 minutes is what people say when they have no idea how long it's going to take people to, you know, because <laughs> if you know you're more specific and you say, well, seven or eight, if you have a good idea or if it's longer, you say, 10 is so vague. No, nothing takes 10 minutes. I like Things the take nine, they take 11. <laughs> right. Nothing is 10. I like, so, like you're dying, <laughs> but your real problem is you can't make the, the, yeah, the paramedic I, laugh. Well, yeah, right. I know, because it would make me feel more comfortable <laughs> if he was just, <laughs> it was a Purely for selfish right. reasons, but so, then I, I lost I lost memory after that. Okay, yeah. So so you were put in a medically induced coma. And, and yeah, I was, I was when I got there. So apparently I was conscious and lucid when I arrived at RPA, but I just don't have any recollection of it. Is there any theory on how you contracted it? No, not. I mean, theory. They know how it's contracted, but in my specific case, no idea. Do you do you have any theory at all? How Not you really. might have caught it? I mean, I think 10 days before I contracted it, it was my birthday. So I went out. I didn't really go out a hell of a lot because I didn't have that much money because I was a student. But I did go out on my birthday night with a few people. Uh, you know, and they say that it, it contracts much like COVID does, I guess, you know, like through saliva if someone coughs on you or sharing a drink with someone or something like that. Might have been as simple as that. Could have been as simple as that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And like something to blame is probably the worst exercise you could indulge in. <laughs> like trying to make your paramedic laugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you were in a coma for how long? I was in a coma for about a couple of weeks, give or take. I think it might have been two and a half weeks or two weeks. And, and given that you said there are memory issues, do you remember coming out of it? Yeah. So coming out of a coma is a very slow process, or at least it was for me. It's not like you see in those... Uh, in the movies where the person's like, bing, and there's like, right. what happened? You know, it was a very iterative process. And um, uh, you start to hear things before you see things. And then there's a weird uh, sort of crossover where you don't know what is a dream and you don't know what is reality. There are indications that some things are reality and suggestions that other parts are dreams. And they kind of cross over. I remember hearing people talking around me and I could only tell by the intonation in their voice whether they were talking to me or about me but it was an important distinction to make because if someone's talking about you and you're not exactly conscious it's probably not good news. I have friends of mine who've been through those comas well people mm. I know anyway who've been through those comas where they have these whole alternate lives yeah right while they've been under wow where there something else has happened entirely and when they come out of it yeah it sort of bleeds into the reality of the mm. of, of their new situation and things that aren't happening are, are very powerful hallucinations for them. They, they, they think they are happening around them. Uh, was there that kind of strange hallucinatory borderland? You, were you occupying that for a little while? Yes. That's kind of what I was trying to describe and didn't put as eloquently as you just did. <laughs> but basically that crossover of reality and dream or that, that I think, in a sense, becomes a hallucination. Interestingly, I actually had some proper hallucinations later on in hospital where they mixed up, mixed up my medicine. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. Like, what? What and did they, you see? Well, because I was on ketamine and fentanyl wow, at one right. point. And, you know, ketamine can be a hallucinogen if you take enough. And I think I was given, like, four times the regular dose of ketamine by accident at one point. 
And I had proper hallucinations. Like I would see people sitting at the end of my bed that weren't there, dogs and cats running into my hospital room. <laughs> I, I was I kept asking for my wallet at one point. I don't know what I thought I was going to do with it in hospital or how I was even going to hold it with my hands. Um, so coming out of the coma, like I said, yeah, as you were in this, this kind of new world, do you remember how the doctors put it to you what had happened to you? Yes. Bits and pieces were revealed to me. At different times. So obviously I'd, I'd learned what I had and what the diagnosis was. I also have to qualify this by saying that I was pumped full of quite a lot of pain medication and drugs at this point. And so my ability to process reality wasn't at its peak, let's say. But then also I didn't lose everything at once. It wasn't like I was in a coma, they amputated all my limbs and then I came out. I came out, I, I was on life support while I was in a coma came out and I was still all in one piece, but had gangrene on my feet and hands. And then they were doing everything they could to save them. So it was suggested at the really early stages that I might lose a few toes or fingers. And then it would, the the more it went on, it was kind of like, you know, I remember a doctor just saying to me, your legs are going to have to go. That's it. And I remember not being too bothered about, I mean, I was obviously upset, but I, I'd seen people with prosthetic legs. I didn't really know how it worked very well or what kind of independence they had. And I knew worst case scenario, I I would be in a wheelchair. And people in wheelchairs are everywhere, right? So they obviously live perfectly acceptable lives being in a wheelchair. And so I wasn't too bothered about that. But then when I had to lose my arms, there was sort of a double prong negative effect such that A, I had no idea of whether someone could really live independently or fruitfully even without arms. Uh, the loss of independence was something that I had no blueprint for, how to ameliorate that. And then on top of all of that, you know, I was an avid guitarist and musician and that was that was part of my life that I just took solace in. It was my, it was what I enjoyed doing. Uh, it was really all I had in life that wasn't obligation, I guess, you know. And so the, the idea that I wouldn't be able to play guitar anymore was just the icing on that cake. Were you thinking, well, I'm not dead, and so everything after that's just a bonus? Yeah, okay. That's an interesting question because whether being dead is the worst-case scenario is not – like you would oscillate between what is the worst-case scenario here, being dead or being in my current position. So (laughs) that's a question you have to answer for yourself. And the the guy who um, talked to me about losing my arms – uh, he came into my room one time and I think he, he said, because uh, there was a lot of talk about losing it, would I have to? And he said, uh, look, you have two options. We can amputate your arms and you can live with prosthetics. And I said, okay, don't really like that option. What else have you got? And he said, well, you can keep them. And I said, well, what's the catch? And he said, well, you'll die. Which I thought, I mean, I thought it was quite funny the way he put it because um I wasn't ready for it. I was was like, oh, okay. But then when I thought about it, in retrospect, he was kind of giving me the choice that if I didn't want to live with no arms, I could choose to keep them. You know, I was over 18, I could make my own decisions uh, and I can't ask them to legally kill me, but I can ask them not to amputate my arms, which would have killed me. And how hard did you have to think about that? I've been asked that question before and I can't give you an honest answer because my memory isn't that great of that time, but it wasn't too long. It wasn't too long. Having prosthetic legs, 
but have to be a different consideration, as you say, to having artificial arms. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you use your hands for everything. It's such a loss of independence when you lose arms. And I think more than anything, it's it's rarer that people lose arms, I think. And, um, and so, as I said, there's kind of no blueprint for it, so it's hard to sort of envisage how your life would be or how you would regain that independence or what you would do. In many ways, I've had to create my own blueprint for a lot of things. How long was it before you could have some kind of set of prosthetics fitted? I mean, was there a while when you spent, when you had a kind of new sense of yourself without those limbs? Yeah, yeah. So it was the 18 months that I spent in hospital was split quite distinctly into the first six months being very, being more concerned with amputations and life support and things like that. And then the latter year was all spent in a rehab hospital. And that was designed to get you back up on prosthetic legs and walking again, using arms, blah, 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 blah. And so there was a good period in between those two where I didn't have any prosthetics at all. Even for the first couple of months of the rehab, I didn't have prosthetics fitted because I had so much skin damage that you can't put a prosthetic leg onto someone who has Mm -hmm. skin damage and then get like put all their weight onto it. It makes the wound management go backwards, which is what happened in many cases. So it was constantly a trade-off of, you know, you have to start the rehab early, otherwise you'll never be able to walk. But the earlier you start it, the worse the wounds will get and you won't be able to walk. So it's kind of like a catch-22 in a way. Yeah, so that was a, it was a touch-and-go period. This is suffering. There's no doubt about it. I mean, to oh, with, yeah, yeah. with wounds and prosthetics mm. being fitted, and that's a lot, of, a lot of frustration and hardship there. Did you feel like you were being tested? Uh, not necessarily, because I would have to ask by whom. By by the world, by life, not not really. I don't I don't know. I think I just had to had to get up and get on with it. Though I didn't feel like I was being tested by anyone in particular. It was just a struggle that I had to go through myself, and I had to be able to communicate when that balance was off for me. That you know, today I can't do the walking because my legs are hurting too much, or the opposite of that. You know, what was the rehab hospital like? The rehab hospital. The rehab hospital was called Prince Henry. It was out in Little Bay. It used to be an infectious diseases hospital back in the day. It's quite large. And when I got there, it kind of looked a bit more like Shutter Island. So most <laughs> of it was abandoned. Um, I thought they, they got up to some like messed up stuff in that hospital, I'm telling you. I, I don't have evidence of this, but I'm pretty sure. Um, and there were only two wards left and, and the, they were the spinal injuries rehab ward. That's where all the cool kids hung out because they were like the young people that broke their back jumping off into sand dunes and stuff. And then there was the normal rehab ward, which is where I was, but it was predominantly populated by, you know, geriatrics and stuff, people who had lost limbs due to um, diabetes. And, and so as a 19-year-old boy, I didn't find too many comrades in mm. the uh, rehab ward, but it was a good motivation to get up on my feet and and try and spend time with the guys from the spinal ward. It was, was it very, as eerie as Shutter Island? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So if you can imagine these sort of like really long uh, nightingale ward style things with veranda balconies and the doors would be like almost like the double French doors that would, would open and there would be a lot of nature that would kind of visit birds and things like that that would fly into the ward. Uh, there were some stray cats that were residents uh, that lived underneath the wards we used to try and feed them some of the hospital food and they wouldn't eat it, which was a, 
is a pretty good indication that the food was shit, right? Like if you give them a, a Swedish meatball and they smell it and look at you and they're like, that's not food, I'm not sure the patients should be eating it either. I have never seen in my life a cat knock back a Swedish meatball. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Jeez, Joe, because that, that hospital was like over the road from Long Bay Jail oh, and we thought the experience of inmates at Long Bay Jail and Prince Henry were pretty similar except they probably got better food than we did. <laughs> But yeah, it was a, it was an interesting uh, place to rehabilitate. It was actually quite nice because it's right near the coast, and there was like a golf course that was just adjacent. So, you know, if you were able bodied enough to get up and have a walk around, it's a beautiful place to walk around in. But for the first few months of my tenure there, that was not the case. <laughs> and there's a golf course out the window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to exaggerate how little you can do. Right. <laughs> I didn't laugh. This is too funny though. Um, how intricate is the process of getting prosthetic legs? Do you start out on these kind of crude prototypes before they can fit something a bit more bespoke for your yeah. specific situation? They, they they start you out on like a temporary leg and it's not for any other reason than your leg shape changes the more you start walking again. So your stump or the, the bit at the end of your leg will shrink. And so they're not going to make a whole prosthetic if one month later they're going to have to make a new one. So they just make you this sort of temporary one in the meantime, until such time as your leg has taken the shape that it will for at least a few years and then they make you a, a proper one. But I think um, it, before you even get those fitted, I remember being on this thing called a tilt table. What's which, a tilt table? It's like a, it looks like a medieval torture device. <laughs> I'm, I'm not convinced that it wasn't, right? But if you can imagine like a gurney sort of thing and they have the big leather straps that go over you, they fit the prosthetic legs onto you and then the tilt table goes from 90 degrees like slowly like up. Tilts you up. Yeah, it tilts you onto up. You, onto these legs. Yeah, that's right. And you don't do it completely up from the start. You might do, you know, 15 degrees so it gives you, it puts a little bit of pressure on your legs and then when you can't take that anymore you go back down and then you did 20 degrees. What's the theory behind that? Well, because your, your legs aren't used to taking the pressure of the prosthetics especially with someone like me who had skin damage. Um, it's just not used to taking the weight of a human. And what about balance as well? Is that part of the... Well, that's why I strap too. you in because otherwise yeah. you probably topple like a wine glass. Was there any doubt in your mind that you would walk again in those things? Did you ever doubt that? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I was pretty confident that I was going to walk again. Um, just because I know that I'm quite stubborn and I know that it's possible. So I was confident that I was going to do it. I think the thing I feared the most was the pain involved in doing it um, because, you know, physical pain has a has a two-pronged negative effect. Obviously, it hurts you, but it, it also makes it more difficult for you to get over mentally because you can't concentrate on overcoming problems as much. Did your pain threshold shoot right up then? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always had a pretty good pain threshold, but... Um, it's weird. I, I when I was doing my um, when I was having dressing changes back in Concord, that was a level of pain that I never knew existed. So it's very difficult to say. You know, someone would say, "What are your pain levels on a scale of one to 10 I'd be like, "Well, I'm not sure what you're going to do with that information because, like, if I say my seven might be your two, and obviously they want to know relative to you, but they don't know relative to them or to anyone else." It's, it's difficult and that scale changes once you've experienced more pain or less pain or whatever it is. Did it take a long while before it became 
comfortable in any way to walk in these new devices? Yeah, it took me a while to walk, more than it takes a normal amputee. And that was mainly because of the skin damage that I had on my legs. How did you learn to walk again with your new legs and arms? What was that process like? When I first got up onto legs after the tilt table experience, I would have a walking frame and then I would have two people holding me under each arm and then I would have one person on one leg, one person on another. And then I had like a person at the front of the walking frame sort of pulling it forward. So it was a six-person exercise or, you know, five-person exercise plus me to get me walking. And my only motivation was to lose one of them at a time. So it was, you know, again, small steps, so to speak. Uh, My first motivation was to get rid of the person holding the frame because they were walking in front of me and that irritated me. And then the second was to be able to lift my own legs um, and so I would get rid of one person there and and then one person under the arm and then I'd get rid of the frame. And so this would take like a couple of months. And then for a while I was walking um, just with a, a crutch that fit on my forearm and one person just keeping me for balance under the other arm. And so every day I would have so, like a wardsman type person would come and be like, okay, let's go for a walk. You'd get up, go for a walk, come back. And you'd do that for a few weeks. And then I remember one day just being feeling confident enough in my balance. And Muhammad was a guy who was actually a wardsman and I became good friends with him. He's a really nice guy and he would take me for walks every day. And I remember walking um, quite briskly down one of the pathways of the hospital. And I remember just saying to him, let go of me, just let go. And he looked at me and normally he wouldn't take that kind of direction if it wasn't from a physiotherapist, but he just knew that I was ready to go. So we just let go and then that was it. I was walking by myself. And then the moment that that happened, everything started to progress. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So Tom, how quickly did things progress for you then once you'd learnt to walk unaided on your new legs? The progress increased exponentially at that point because there's a sense of autonomy in it as well. So then I was walking with a crutch and it was very quick after that that I would lose the crutch. And then it was very quick after that that I learned how to walk up steps. So I think as soon as I lost everybody helping me, that's when it started to really progress. Yeah. Does that mean that in walking with prosthetics that the muscles of your upper leg, that the remnants of your leg, mm. have to do a lot more work than they normally would? And do you have like these, you know, rock hard... <laughs> I do, yeah, yeah. A muscular. You're talking about my legs, legs, right? Yeah, I am I, talking about your legs. <laughs> Just be very clear about that, sir. <laughs> this is a family show. That's right, indeed. Um, so your legs, upper legs must be incredibly strong in yeah, order to be able yeah. to propel yourself forward. And yeah. also just uh, maintaining balance. Maintaining balance, I think, takes a lot of uh, different muscles that you would use in your thighs than a normal person would, you know, with legs. Then came the decision about what kind of arms you were going to have. Mm. Why do you think you chose to have hooks rather than, say, fake hands? There's a few reasons. One, because the hands aren't very useful. 
Like they're quite cumbersome and like you can't really get fine motor skills with the fingers. But if I was going to be honest, I would say that the hands kind of annoy me a bit because they just, it's like they're trying to convince someone yeah. that they're a hand. And I, I always think like, who are you trying to fool? And it, well, by the way, like if you can pick any hand you want, pick something cool. And I, I saw the hooks. So I was like, the first time I didn't really like them that much. And then I sort of got used to them. And I was like, actually, these things look pretty badass. Like I could, I could get around these. Do and they have anything opposable, like a thumb type thing on it that uh, you have? No, the, the opposability is the way that they work is on resistance. And so the rubber bands hold the hooks together. And then the cable goes all the way around my back. And then when I pull on it, it pulls the cable and the rubber band provides the resistance. And so the hooks come together. The hooks are opening and closing, and yeah. I can't tell how you did that. So if you can see the rubber bands there, that's what holds the two together. And then that cable that's connected to what I like to call the thumb, <laughs> that cable goes all the way around my back and straps up around the opposing arm, which means when I, when I push my arm out, it kind of pulls on that cable. So if I'm, if I'm holding something in this left hook and then I go to grab something in that right, it actually opens the left hook a little bit. So I've got to be quite careful. And I've had many problems holding, you know, a glass of wine or something and I go and grab a cigarette or something and whoosh. So that takes a while to get used to then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing that I noticed a lot early on was that I was getting really good at using hooks much faster than most people do simply because I had both. Most people would lose one limb and therefore they would use their good arm for everything. Oh, And I they would see. rarely use the hook for anything unless they absolutely needed to. But because I'd been put in a situation where I'm forced to use them for everything, I progressed really quickly. Does it make any difference being left-handed or right-handed once you have prosthetics? Good question. Uh, apparently not. I, I thought it would. Uh, I was always right-handed. And what I discovered was when I started getting prosthetics, I actually got my left arm before I got my right arm because I had too many wounds on my right arm. And I started becoming ambidextrous. I started being able to write with my left hand and do all sorts of stuff with my left hand. And then as soon as I got my right, I became right-handed again. Now when I write, which is, you know, rarely with a pen, uh, I do it with my right hand. In some ways, we're all cyborgs these days to one degree or another. I Absolutely, mean, we use computers yeah. all the time and mm. we use them as extensions of ourselves. Is it like that for you with your, with your arms and hooks now? Do, can you sort of operate them without having to really concentrate too much on them? Yeah, I operate them without having to concentrate too much, unless it's something new that I have to do. So the interesting thing about operating in the world with prosthetics is that the world is designed for people with hands and so I have to work out a way of doing things that is not the way everyone else does things. And so once I work out what that is, like for a task, like if I'm pouring a kettle or you know something like that, I, I know that usually I have to grab something around the base so that the center of gravity is at a particular level and I have to provide resistance with my other hook and tip it. Now I know I can use any kettle, right? But if there was something completely different that I've never done before, it takes me a while to work out how I'm going to do that with hooks. It must keep you sharp, really sharp. If you're yeah. constantly looking around, you're having to figure out how to negotiate things, which other people might take for granted. I think it's 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 more a case of, I think it changes neural pathways or something like that. It makes you a really good problem solver because you can sort of map that like learning process onto any part of your life. Um, it, it doesn't have to be in the physical world. Are you in touch with other people who've got hook 
type prosthetics like you? Not with hooks. Um, I was introduced to uh, someone who had lost his hands, Jeff. Uh, he used the myoelectric hands, but um, it, very few people with hooks. I mean, nowadays I kind of see them more because the connectivity of the world. I mean, a few have reached out to me, people in Brazil who have lost arms and there's a guy over there that uses hooks and people I see on the internet. And certainly when I lost my arms, we didn't really have that interconnected world as such. It would just be who you would meet on the street. It might be a really stupid question, but do the hooks detach and can they be replaced by like a knife and fork, for example? Or do, yes. you, use, do you hold the knife and fork? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing people think is like, oh, inspect a gadget, right? And that would be awesome. However, for me to take them out and change them with different endings, I guess, would be more trouble than just learning how to hold things with the hooks. Like prosthetic arms aren't designed for people who have lost arms. They're designed for people who have lost an arm. Because most people don't lose both arms. They might lose one. Um, But yeah, I mean, you can change them out for different things. If I had another hand, I could probably do that. I would much rather travel with less hardware. I already travel with a ridiculous amount of hardware and I'm trying to reduce that as I go. But these are very lightweight and they're really easy to repair. So they're actually the best kind of technology for me because I can use them easier because they're light. If the cable breaks, I've got a cable with me that I can just wire up a new one. If I've got an electric hand and I have to plug it into a laptop (laughs) and download firmware from Germany, I mean, (laughs) like, you know, I I don't need something that has batteries, you know, I don't need another thing in my life that needs charging, right? I don't want to have a really heavy arm that I can't pull up properly. So, you know, all of that technology is too much for me. I need something that's lightweight, that works, that's durable. And that's the thing I like about them the most. So the whole big challenge, of course, you know, you learn to walk, as you say, and then you could walk unaided. Then there comes the day when you leave the rehab hospital and go and live in the world. How was that uh, process for you? That was an interesting process because uh, I wasn't yet able to live completely independently. And so I had to spend a few months living with someone and that person was my mother. And she lived at the time up in the Blue Mountains and she had quite a small house up there. And the the driveway was a, a sort of pebbly driveway that was at like a 45 degree angle, very difficult to traverse and some wooden stairs that went up and it was quite a small little pokey house. But I thought to myself, I mean, it was kind of the perfect place to rehabilitate, right? Because if I can live in that house... I can live anywhere. If I can do those stairs, if I can walk down that driveway, if I can live in a small space and up in the mountains where I would walk all the way up um, from wherever our small street was to the local post office or shop or pub or whatever. So I was in the Blue Mountains for I think maybe five to six months or somewhere in that order. And then I moved out on my own, got my own place. And as soon as I was left to my own devices, I started to progress exponentially once again. So the thing about living on my own was, I mean, I had a flatmate, but at the time she was a uni student, so she wouldn't be there all the time. So I was now left at home for extended periods of time without anyone around. So if I needed to fix a problem, if I needed something, if I needed a glass of water, if I needed you know, coffee, if I needed a cigarette, I need to work out ways I can do that. And so I was put under pressure and I was forced to just come up with ideas. I have to ask, how do you smoke a cigarette with a a hook? 
these hooks were developed in around World War One for people who lost their arms in the trenches, and everyone used to smoke back then, right? So it's got that little hole there for cigarettes, and they've just retained that design element. But yeah, that that served me really well. But it wasn't the getting of a cigarette or the smoking of a cigarette; it was the lighting of a cigarette, right? So I I would be left at home, and I was like, often I would get someone in the morning to put a candle on, and so I'd always have the candle there. And then the candle would blow out, and it's a stupid idea. I can't, it's completely untenable. So then I would start lighting cigarettes on the toaster. That was pretty dangerous. And then there was the stove. And then I think that my stove broke or something. And I had the brilliant idea of wrap, like rolling up an A4 sheet of paper, putting it under the grill, (laughs) setting fire to it, running out into my backyard, lighting the cigarette, and then stamping it out. What am I going to get? Burns? Or you could just give up smoking. Yeah, no, I'm too stubborn. Right. And so, um, and then I remember doing that once and I passed a box of matches near the barbecue, you know, the big ones. And I was like, I could do that. I could definitely light a match. And so I sat there all day just striking matches with my hooks, just practicing, getting better at striking matches. And then that's how I overcome that problem. So, you know, there's little things that would come up all the time that, you know, oh, I didn't think, how am I going to do this? I didn't think, how am I going to do that? You know, like, How about travelling overseas? Was that an, an ambition for you? Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, I've always loved travelling. In particular, the first time I went overseas, I had wanted to visit my grandparents because they were told when I was on life support to come over and pretty much to say their goodbyes. And they live in England. And I think my grandfather at the time had been on you know, very much he had heart problems and wasn't really supposed to be traveling. And they made it over anyway for a short stint. And and I remember speaking to him in hospital and I said to him, I was like, you know, next I'll come visit you after I get out of here. And I remember him looking at me and saying, yeah, of course you will. But I knew that he didn't really believe that and he thought I was going to die. So being the stubborn individual that I was, I'm like, no, I'll show him. I'll, I'll get over there. And so it was only about six months after I was living alone on my own that I decided to take the plunge and and go traveling. And I thought I'll do Europe and uh, with a friend, a friend of mine, Craig, who I'd I'd only known Craig for about six months before that as well. And uh, we just decided to go overseas together for like six weeks. I would visit my grandparents over there, all my family. I've got auntie and cousin and everything like that. And then I would, we'd also just hire a car and drive around Europe and with no plan, because this is like 2003, it wasn't like, oh, Airbnb, like, you know, you got nothing planned, right? <laughs> we just hired a car and just drove around. And I figured like, if I can do that holiday, I can do pretty much anything. And I was a bit curious. I mean, I probably was biting off a bit more than I could chew at the time. I had a few disasters. I think my leg fell off once when I was in Germany and I smashed my knee and Craig was didn't know what to do because he just like he's not a doctor, he's not a prosthetist, he's not anything. I'm just like, we have to just go back to the hotel room. I take my leg off and you get a whole bunch of booze and we just sit here and get hammered for two days. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we and we drove around. So we did the, the UK thing. I think we, we went up to Scotland and then around to like Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Italy, France. And how about your grandparents? We visited them, of course. And it was a really good feeling like just pulling up to that house and having him sort of just, he's just standing at the doorway and, you know, he just looked really, he was, it was like a mixture of sadness, happiness and pride all in one. 
and uh, I think he had a bit of a cry and gave me a hug and then uh, turned back into his stoic self and said, right, well, gin and tonic then or what? A lot of people I've had on the program who have disabilities are often quite charismatic people mm. and charming, like you are as well. Is this the way you've always been or is it more like a side of yourself that's really had to come to the fore since your accident to help other people through their feelings of awkwardness? I think it's a combination. I mean, there are things that I would say to make someone feel comfortable with my disability, but I don't think that my personality has necessarily changed at its core. But I, I think it's always good to be able to try to make someone feel comfortable with your disability because I would otherwise forget if I meet someone for the first time, like the first thing they're thinking of is like, dude's got no hands, dude's got no hands. Like, what do we say? Can I mention that? And that must be awful. Even though I don't think about it, it's just something that would plague them. And it would be better if we're just on the same page and are comfortable to talk about things. So it's just a preamble to get through to, so you yeah, don't it's just, to be talking it's about it all yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You taught yourself to play guitar again. <laughs> How is that possible? Oh, so I uh, I went through many different designs of how I could possibly play a guitar again, and they were all crap, except for one. So I, I was pretty determined that I was going to try and make this work. And it, it was kind of strange because you kind of have to work backwards when solving problems like that. You got to think to yourself, well, what outcome do I want? You know, I don't need to become Stevie Ray Vaughan. What do I like about playing the guitar? You know, I like the process. I like playing it. I like playing it with my friends. I like writing music. And you don't need the intricate abilities that a lead guitarist does to achieve those goals. And so I started thinking more about how I could approximate guitar playing. So playing like a kind of rhythmy type thing, such that I can still play with a band and I can still write music, but I'm not playing like some fancy lead guitar. And so then I started thinking about different ways that I could have a, a chord formation of buttons that I could press. And then I thought, well, rather than doing a chord formation, let's make the strings work for us and tune them in a way that if you are only able to press down one fret, it's going to play one chord. And then you can move that up fret by fret. Slug guitar. There you go. Slug guitar. Yeah. Proper open tuning, tune the E down open to a D and, um, and yeah, away you right. go. And then I, well, I had to design something that would emulate like a slide, something that I could hold with my hooks. And I converted my Stratocaster and I raised the action on it and changed the pickups and put flat wound strings. And, and then I also made a little attachment that I could put my right hook into that would hold a pick. It's like a pick holder. It would screw in and then put it on my lap and sort of augment the position of the hooks. And, you know, the learning to play it again was nothing because I had the theory behind me. I already knew how to play the guitar. It was just the physicality I needed to get over. And the real pleasure of it anyways, like you say, is playing and singing with friends. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And the funny thing was, is after I did that, I, I took the music and guitar playing further than I ever did because I feel like those old challenges of being self-conscious about starting a band and writing music and doing all those things kind of paled in comparison to the challenge that I'd just overcome. So I was like, well, why don't we just do it? We'll start a band and write songs and we recorded them and uh, played gigs around. Well, you know, we weren't terribly good, but the fact that we did it uh, was more of an achievement than when I had hands. Now you're a DJ. Mm. You've been doing gigs all over the world as a DJ? Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> now I did sort of make some mention at the start that Perhaps you're living the kind of life, you're doing things that maybe you normally wouldn't have thought of doing. You've got a different yeah. kind of mindset. This problem-solving mindset might have led you 
to say yes a whole lot to things in the past you might not have said so often to. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, you know, what I was mentioning before about that sort of thinking differently to overcome problems, I guess, plays a bit into the DJing because we're, like Chris and I, who, who I run the brand with and who we DJ together, took a completely different approach to becoming DJs. We completely started from the end and worked backwards. So we we, we made sure we identified some fairly false assumptions about what it takes to become a DJ, which is that A, you need to know how to DJ, B, that you need <laughs> equipment or you need to invest in annoying clothes or that you need to make hone your craft and send mixtapes out to people. So we just sort of started from the end and we started our own club night and put ourselves on as the DJs, even though we didn't know how to DJ really. And two things happen there. One, uh, if you're convincing enough, you can convince people that you're supposed to be there. So now you have a headline slot. The second thing is you learn pretty quickly how to do it once you're thrown in the deep end, which is kind of like losing both hands. You know what I mean? If you're in front of 500 people on your opening night, as I was, and you've just learned where the play button was, <laughs> you're going to learn pretty quickly how to DJ. And we did. And that that kind of just, that went really quickly. And, and it was only a few months of running our own club night that we started getting asked to DJ at other places. And we were kind of like, I can't believe people want to pay us to do this, but fine, like we'll take it. And we just got better and better. And then we we eventually, we just had our brand that was intrinsically tied in with our, our party, which had the same name as us as DJs. And then we were playing gigs at other clubs. And then we got invited to play at music festivals and even host stages at music festivals and play internationally and all, all sorts of stuff. And yeah, we still DJ today. It's like 15 years later or something. It's brilliant. <laughs> and it's been brilliant speaking with you, Tom. I've yeah. really loved this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been fantastic. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.